Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by Reader Supported, LA Review of Books. I'm your host this week, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined remotely in our virtual studio today by LARB's Managing Editor, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. Oh, I talked over you. Hi, Eric. <laughs> That's okay. That's how we do in these times. <laughs> So today we have a conversation with Juli Delgado Lopera, author of Fiebre Tropical. And one of the things that, like as longer time listeners of the show will know, it's like, I have such a deep and profound love for diaspora novels or novels about the diaspora experience. Mm -hmm. And that's in part what's going on in this. In our conversation, we get a lot into how language moves across space and place, how it kind of connects us to places and also can witness our disconnection. And obviously it's also a queer story, which of course I love too. So there's lots to love for me in this particular conversation this week. Yeah, and it's a really, I, I keep looking for the right words to put it in, but it's a, it's a really alive story. I, I'm not sure that every book fits into that category and it's kind of rare to find something that feels sort of like vibrational when you pick it up and Fiebre Tropical kind of felt that way for me. And yeah, let's just talk to Huli about it. Yeah, let's go do it. We're excited to have Juli Delgado Lopera with us on the line today. Juli is a Colombian writer and historian based in San Francisco and the author of two previous books, the essay collection Quiereme and Cuéntamelo, an oral history of Latinx LGBT immigrants that won a Lambda Literary Award. They join us today to discuss their first foray into fiction, Fiebre Tropical, which recounts a teen girl's navigating her family's relocation to Miami from Bogota, her mother's fervent evangelical faith, and her budding sexual self-awareness. Ensconced in the gaps and religions that characterize diasporic life and queer consciousness, the novel centers on the feelings of rootlessness, mystery, and existential anxiety that are yet the hallmarks of every adolescence. Welcome to the show, Juli. Hi, thank you for having me, Eric. So, Juli, I wanted to start because when I started reading the book, the first thing that hits you is how clear, or maybe how vivid is really the word I'm looking for, the family is. So we should say it's the book it begins with a young Colombian woman moving with her mother into her grandmother's house. Her sister lives there as well. And the painting of the characters is so vivid. I was wondering if you could paint a similar picture of your childhood and how you grew up. Sure. So I am originally from Bogota, Colombia, and I lived there until I was 15 years old. Mm -hmm. And in Bogota, I grew up with, I have a sister and my mom and my father there. And my mom has four sisters. My grandmother has four sisters. Wow. And so, yeah. And so a lot of women. So I grew up in a matriarchy. So I grew up in a huge matriarchy and I tell the story that I grew up basically around the dining table watching my tias, my aunts, tell stories. And now in retrospect, I realized how important that was for me as a writer and as a storyteller. And at mm -hmm. the time, it was just, that's how I grew up. So in Bogota, a lot of my aunts, they were very expressive women. And they also kind of behaved like my mothers too. So I grew up there. I went to an all-girl Catholic school. So I was in a very, very rigid environment. My mom when she was young, wanted to be a nun. Mm -hmm. And so 
she ran her house like a nunnery, basically. It was wow. very organized and proper and everything had its place and it was very orderly. And then I went to like the school. And so it was only when I would get to my grandmother's house at the end of the day. So I would be dropped off. The bus would drop me off at my grandmother's house that a lot of that chaos and beautiful chaos really took over. My grandmother mm-hmm. was a seamstress and a cook. I would run up the stairs when I would get home from school and she would open the door and we would rush to her room and like turn on the TV for the telenovela that I loved, which is a Mexican telenovela called Dos Mujeres Un Camino. And we will <laughs> sing the opening credits of it together. And she would make me dresses and she would just let me play. So definitely my childhood was very much influenced by just the insane amount of women that were around me. I had only, when I was very little, I only had one cousin and then my sister was born two years after me. But I spend a lot of time around adult women, basically. It's interesting that it's, you know, obviously many of us, like when we write, you know, what's that that line about a first novel where it's like, if you scratch the surface, you'll find an autobiography. And I'm wondering too about, you know, you also made a similar move from Bogota to the United States that Francisca does, the girl at the center of your novel. And one of the things that I'd love to ask about is if you can talk a bit about how she's navigating the kind of struggles of diaspora, right? Longing to be back in Bogota, but also increasingly feeling kind of distant from it. And in that way, also feeling like there's no place really that's hers. So could you just talk a little bit about that kind of tension in place and identity for Francisca. Yeah, I mean, I feel that that's basically at the core of her anxiety and her existence at that time, right? She's 15, and like any teenager who's 15 years old, living the place where you are and trying to go to a very different place in another country at that, it just feels very uprooted. And so part of the huge struggle for Francisca is trying to be able to find some sort of sense of connection and community and a sense of self and belonging, which is just so essential to who we are as human beings. But it's very specific when you're a teenager. And she tries when she moves, you know, she still tries to chat with her friends through MSN which was the chat when... Right, I remember. (laughs) In the early 2000s, that was the chat. And yet the language evolved so quickly for her. It was just leaving her behind. And the city itself, Bogota itself, was evolving at a pace that she just couldn't keep up. And so she tries to keep up her life over there and like try to like insert herself in the gossip. And yet it's impossible because things are leaving her behind. And I made a specific point to try to explore a little bit of the language because that's so crucial when you're a teenager, the language is kind of like the glue that creates both social hierarchies and intimacy with your friends. Right. And the language is constantly evolving. And the language also shows you who's at the top of the social hierarchy, who's not, who's the cool people who are not. And so language has so much to do with that. And she really feels left out by her own language and her own city. I love that you brought that point up because that I like definitely remarked to my husband is Cuban American. And so we were talking about this, like the moment that you talk about how slang, it's not just that new friends have entered her friend's world, but it's like that the slang itself has changed. And that mm-hmm. this, like, the slipperiness of language as something that roots you and suddenly cannot. Was that part of your experience, too, that suddenly you felt like, 
ah, this place that felt like a rock or a core for me is changing and slipping away. I mean, for me, like actual me, Juliana, it was more when I went back to Colombia for the first time. Ah, I see. Um, And so I remember going back. I didn't go back until three years after because of papers. And so when I went back, the shock was like terrible. I mean, I was already, I already had already like lose a lot of connection with my friends and my people. And I had a boyfriend when I first moved to the States. And so I lost a lot of that. And it was going back that I remember the shock of the way that people interacted. You know, like three years mm. in a teenager's life is a lifetime. Like it's yeah, amazing. yes. And even though I was hanging out with a lot of like Latin American teenagers in Miami, then I started picking up on their slang, which was a mixture of people from Venezuela, Uruguay, Argentina, Colombia. So our slang was just very different. I couldn't keep up. So I tried when I was crafting Francisca's character. I try to put in, I condense some of that that I felt later for myself, like as an actual teenager, in the move of language. So yeah, in my life, it was the biggest shock was when I went back to Colombia and I realized that I, a lot of the ways that I spoke and that I, I remember just like the words for kissing and partying and like (laughs) hanging out were just shifting all of a sudden and people were borrowing words from somewhere else Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden the words that I had were like, you know, four years older and I just couldn't keep up. But for the specifics of the narrative, I try to condense it and just make it seem like, you know, six months had passed or four months had passed and things were changing so fast. In the book, the main character, Francisca, she she has a complicated relationship to the matriarchy that surrounds her. I imagine you had a similar thing because you're uprooted. As you said, you are no longer in the place that you know, and you can quickly lose connection to that place that you knew. At the same time, the matriarchy is kind of what keeps you alive, right, in some ways. Can you talk about your relationship to the matriarchy that you grew up with, and maybe how it's it might have or might have not changed over the years? Yeah, I grew up thinking that the women in my family were the shit. I grew up thinking that they were... I mean, they sound like the shit. Yeah, they do. <laughs> Doesn't yeah, sound like you're wrong. Really they're truly amazing people. I grew up very much in a very insular family, meaning that I had friends, but I never really stayed over at my friend's house. I didn't really hang out with other people. Like, for me, my family and the women in my family were it, were the shit. I looked up to my aunts a lot. I was raised by all of them. I spend... Every single week I would see them and they were all kind of racing me. So they were all basically, you know, my second, thirds and fourths and fifth and sixth moms. And it wasn't until we moved to the States that I started showing signs of being very weird. And so in Colombia, I went, you know, all girl Catholic school, I was 15. So by the time I was 15, I had already been partying. And my mom was like, you know, I was already kind of like a rebellious child, But it was definitely when I got to Miami that the really weird kid really bloomed. And because all of that was starting to come out, it was really working against what the family has set up for itself, which was being very insular and very normative. Because they come from a family of all women and they're all Colombian women. So there's a lot of emphasis on like the body and Mm -hmm. how bodies look and So there's a lot of that. And my family became evangelical Christian when we moved to Miami and everybody became Christian. And so it started feeling very isolating for me. 
And so it took a while for me. I mean, when I was living in Miami, I had a really hard time. And then I ended up moving to San Francisco and applying to school outside of the state just so I could leave the house. It's in retrospect now that I realize how I love my aunt and I love the place where I grew up. And at the same time, like the toxicity inside some families is just, you can't see it until you leave, basically. And so I now in retrospect, I realize the pressure of normalcy and the pressure of being so incredibly isolated and how basically my belonging to the family was also related to me being able to perform normativity. And because I'm queer and because I'm not only queer, but I'm trans and I look weird, (laughs) you know, like I look very strange. I do drag, I paint my face. So I am completely the opposite of what my family has set out, the family project had set out to do with all of us, you know, Mm -hmm. especially if you were born female. And so I now, you know, like I love my aunts a lot and now we have a relationship and now we have a relationship based on boundaries and I set up those boundaries and now it's like, it's different. But I went through a really, really hard time with everybody in my birth family. I didn't talk to my mom for years. My mom and I had a really, really hard relationship and it was because her involvement with the Christian church didn't really let her see beyond her own fears, basically, around Um, who I was. Yeah, to bring that back to the novel, you know, there's at least two ways to think about Francisca's relationship to her mommy and also to Tata, right? So one is to think about just what you were saying about kind of growing up in a matriarchy, that it's like, you know, Francisca tends to think of her mommy and Tata as they're kind of conservative, they're boring. I mean, the way that all teenagers do, right? But Mm -hmm. you provide these backstories for them that help us, if maybe not Francisca, to recognize that it's like, these were women who tried to live their own kind of free life, but were not able to for various reasons. And so I'm wondering if in some ways that's a way of reckoning with what seems maybe on the surface of it as conservative, but are people that are coming out of a different experience and whether or not that impacts the way that we might think Francesca will go about either as able to live a life on her own terms or if like that kind of living a life on one's own terms is always compromised. Yeah. So let's start with just like how she feels about her matriarchy. She has an understanding of what growing up around all of these women kind of is on a day-to-day. She hasn't been able Mm -hmm. to really remove herself completely because she's still like very much in it, right? So she makes like little annotations around like the collective female sadness and the female sadness jar. And like, so she makes annotations around all of that. So she has a little bit of an understanding that there's a way that there are all pressure to be because there's so many women around. right? And in writing those characters... After the first draft, I kept looking at Mommy and Tata. Those chapters were not there. And I really wanted to, even though Francisca has a weird relationship with them, like, you know, like any teenager, she doesn't like her mom. They're conservative. They're putting all these rules. They're going to church. She hates it. She's trying to find her own groove and like she can't. And at the same time, I wanted them to be full human beings. I wanted them to move beyond just the relationship that they had with Francisca into like their full humanity. I also feel that, you know, because I'm using Spanglish, they're funny. 
they're funny characters at times, you know, like mommy's funny, la tatas and stuff like that. And I've also didn't want to fall into like the Latino stereotypical trap of just making these women funny because they're using Spanish or they're saying something with an accent, you know, I yeah. wanted to be able to like expand and not make them two dimensional characters, but actually like full human beings. So I thought about how to do that. So there's in the actual like narrative present, there are moments when Francisca sees her mom like crying at night or she finds the hair. So there's little windows that you get to see the mom's sadness and the grandmother's sadness. And yet for me, the backstories are so important because it removes both the grandmother and the mother from just those roles. So they're not only a mother and they're not only a grandmother, but they're fully human beings also going through their own teenage angst. And also specifically, when I was writing the grandmother's chapter, I was thinking about what it would have been to grow up in the 1950s in a small town, well, in a town like Cartagena, which is a very tight society circle, and try to like, try to articulate your own desire when there's no words for it, there's no articulation in the world, you have nothing for it. Like, what would that even look like? And that's where the grandmother's desire also comes from. It's like, they both grew up in very different time periods. And I wanted their desire and their lives to, I wanted to figure out how to articulate that in those specific time periods when women didn't have access to like a million things. And so that's also where the backstory comes in is to try to make them more complex, more full human beings and not just, you know, women are always taught in relationship to somebody else. And so I wanted them to just be like fully medium and fully Alba in their own So one of the things that is a big part of them and their lives is the church. I wanted to hear about your relationship to the church now. I mean, you said, you know, that your own family joined the evangelical church when they moved, but also the ways in which you think about it within the context of the book and what role it played for you in examining the story and the family in it. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I started the book. So the book got started because when I was doing my MFA, I was going to write a story. And I had a lot of anger and resentment towards the church for many reasons. The main one just being that I had felt all my life that they had basically taken my family from me. And Mm. anything that you're scared of and anything that causes anger, I mean, to me, it's like it's a great fertile soil for art, any sort of art. And so I remember that when we were in Miami, my mom had did have a miscarriage many years ago before I was born. And I remember the conversation around baptizing babies that are unborn. It never fully happened. But in my head, you know, many years later now in my MFA, I was like, oh my God, what if it had actually happened? What would it look like? You know, because the church, the real church in real life to me was insane and (laughs) sorry just to interrupt you how so what do you mean it was insane well it was just like outrageous you know I everything was so extreme everything was completely black and white and that's a little bit of what happens also in the book is that if you don't devote yourself fully to Christ then therefore you're not with him Mm-hmm. And so that meant that everybody was trying to constantly prove that they were like the most Christian and everybody was so devoted. And the performance of Christianity around me was like so annoying because <laughs> <laughs> so, I could see the performance about it, like me, Juliana in her real life. I could see the performance of it. And so I had a really fraught relationship with the church. I felt that they were just like malicious people, to be honest. Mm. 
And specifically the church that my mom attended when we first moved in, she moved a few churches around. But that one specifically, I just felt that they were just like deeply malicious. And so in writing the story about the baby, that's where it just took off. The characters became too big to contain within a short story. I started like thinking about what was going to happen later. I started really liking the characters. And so it just bloomed from that. And then for the actual research of the novel, I went into their website and I saw a bunch of the services. They have all these YouTube videos about it. So it was incredibly triggering. Um, (laughs) But I used them a lot in the research. And I also like, you know, my relationship with my mom became way better and we started building a new relationship. And so I talked to her about the book that I was writing and she was incredibly generous with her collaboration with me. And she gave me a lot of the details that I have forgotten about Mm. how things went down. But I spent a lot of time watching services again. And it was, you know, it was hard because I got very triggered by them. And at the same time, like, I feel like it was great material for me to produce something. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Juli Delgado Lopera, author of Fiebre Tropical. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. So, we have Wayne Kestenbaum on the line with us today. He's actually on the Zoom with us, and Wayne has a new book out. It's called Figure It Out but he is here to recommend a different book for us. Wayne, what book are you going to recommend? I'm going to recommend two books by the writer Magda Zabo, S-Z-A-B-O with an accent on the O, a Hungarian writer. The one I'm reading, I'm about four-fifths through now, is called Catalan Street, K-A-T-A-L-I-N, which is, I think, Hungarian for Catherine Street. And the other book of hers that I have read in entirety is called the door. I'm not a big novel reader. It's sometimes really hard. It's very hard for me to figure out plots. I like monologues. I like there to be one character stuck in a room with that character's memory. I don't want interactions. I don't want uh, flashbacks. I can't cope with it. But The Door is one of the greatest novels I have ever read. Um, I totally it, agree with you. It's not like any other book because it is somebody stuck in her house. She's stuck in her house. And she won't open the door and it's just filthy and polluted in her house. And she's like being buried alive by her phobias or by her refusal of human contact or of historical continuity or whatever. She's, so she's like a Jean Reese character without the glamour in a way without the, without the bottle of Guerlain Le Bleu to splash on. Uh, you know, but she's a recluse. She's, it's, it's a terrible confinement. It's a great, great book. And so now I'm reading Catalan Street, which was a little more confusing for me at the beginning. There were a lot of characters. Some were dead, some were alive. I didn't know the genders of the characters, which is great. But if you were a reader in Hungarian, you would know the genders of the characters or the purported genders. I didn't know, you know, if somebody was a mother or a brother or a sister or a grandfather. But then about a third of the way through, it really clicked. And it's about how, again, how we're stuck in our houses. Even after our death, we're stuck in our houses. And she's a magical writer. She lived from 1917 to 2007. And she's published by the New York Review of Books imprint. 
Yeah. Catlin Street is, is translated by Len Ricks, and The Door was also translated by Len Ricks, R-I-X. I was recommended The Door by a friend, and I was very grateful for the recommendation after I read the book, because I agree with you. I think it's, it's a surprising work of genius, I think. How did you discover Magda Jabo? There's a great bookstore right down the street from me in New York called 192 Books. It's actually like a block away. It's run by Paula Cooper Gallery or in conjunction with Paula Cooper Gallery. And it's the dream bookstore for me of all time. And I'm so grateful for their existence. And they have a table. It's a very small bookstore. They have a table there that just works in translation. Whenever I go in there to browse or to pick up a special order, I always look at the translation table and I always pick up something because there's, there's, they're fabulous things. You'll suddenly see there's the collected letters of Ingeborg Bachmann and Paul Ceylon. I have to buy that. And there was this book, The Door by Magda Sabo. Cruising uh-huh. novels, even though I find really getting into one very difficult. So if it's published by Dalkey Archive or Europa maybe or Archipelago books or the New York Review book, series I will often buy. It may take me years to read, but then I finally do. So you, you have a type that you cruise for? I cruise for ostensibly turgid, erotically drenched novels about solitary souls. That sounds great. <laughs> so, I also want to recommend the, the works of Pierre Guillotat, G-U-Y-O-T-A-T, who tragically died very recently. His works in English are published by Semiotext. In the Deep, Coma, they're really great books. These are great recommendations, Wayne. Will you tell us the titles of the books again and the authors? Yes, okay, so Magda Zabo, Catalan Street is one of her books, and the other is The Door. And Pierre Guillotat, published by Semiotext, one book is In the Deep, Another is Coma. Great. We've been talking to Wayne Kestenbaum. His new book is called Figure It Out. Thank you, Wayne. My pleasure. You are listening to the LARP Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Juli Delgado Lopera, author of Fiebre Tropical. It's interesting I mean, to hear you say that you were triggered, that something that is present in the novel is the powers of these absent male bodies. You know, so there's the, the baby, the brother that wasn't born. The mother is, is as you said, setting up this uh, sort of enormous baptism for a miscarried child named Sebastian. And then Jesus <laughs> would be the other mm-hmm. sort of empty male body that has this enormous, enormous sway over the happenings of the book and also but also of the of the real life women that exist within it and the just the the other people that exist within it. So it's it's interesting to hear that that power is still somewhat present for you too, it sounds like that there's still uh, there's something about that that space in which that that power exists that still is triggering for you. Well, I mean, now, I mean, I started writing this novel seven years ago. So definitely Mm -hmm. a lot of things have changed dramatically for me. And I, I mean, if I hear Christian rock, 
something inside me dies. <laughs> well, well, isn't that true for all of us? Yeah, yeah, that, that might be. Because that might be everyone. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you're right. I mean, there is a lot of power of the male absent bodies. And I think that that is just because the matriarchy is so dysfunctional because you're so mm. constrained by a patriarchy. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's yeah. basically it. The matriarchy, what they're doing is that is the way that they manage to create something in a world that puts them down and treats them as second-class citizens. Yeah. And so, you know, it is the reason why, you know, they, they put all this effort on like Jesus and on the baby and like, you know, the father and like the other, you know, the other grandfather, like every, like these men are dead. These men are not there. They always left. But yet, you know, the mom is really sad because of it. She's incredibly depressed. She doesn't get any help from him. Yeah. And so they exert all this pressure even as they're invisible. And I feel that that just speaks to the power of the patriarchy and the way that it seeps in into women's relationships with each other and women's relationships in general, even when they're not physically present. It's the power of the patriarchy, basically. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to, I mean, there's also something in there about how like the patriarchal form of religion also gives form to all of those lives and that becomes its own sort of comfort and structure. But I'm, I'm, I'm interested. One of the things that I, I really appreciated about your novel is how Francisca's kind of coming to consciousness about her lesbian desire. I mean, I guess I, she never really has that moment where she's like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm a lesbian, right? I don't think. But what I love about that is that that process is so slow and uneven, right? It involves lots of ebbs and flows and back and forth kind of repression and, and openness. And that strikes me as like very different from this kind of typical coming out narrative where there's one major event and then it's like, and I'm gay, you know? So it's like, Mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about what it was like to write those parts of Francisca's experience um, and, and why you kind of unfolded it the way that you did? Yeah. So the first thing is I didn't set out to write a queer novel, I didn't, you know, I didn't, I was like, oh, this is going to be telling a story of somebody coming out and this is how I'm going to structure it. I was in love with the characters, period. And this mm. character just happened to have le- like queer desires. And so I feel like just even in that approach, it makes it differently because I wasn't trying to get at that. I also, yeah, and I also, I, I am troubled by the idea of a coming out narrative where you just have an aha moment and you all of a sudden are wearing a rainbow flag and are just like (laughs) watching RuPaul's Drag Race and you know are out like that is it feels very untrue and also this specific girl she has no and again similarly to maybe the grandmother she has no way of articulating queerness because there's no queerness around her at all you know there's that moment where like and yet she feels the queer desire. And so she never names it. And I feel like it's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of like unknowns around the naming of it. And I'm, I would, I'm, I'm suggesting that Francisca doesn't name it out of shame, but she feels that the uh, consequences of this can be major. And we know that because when her grandmother suggests that there was something happening with Carmen, she immediately gets all anxious and she like, but there's never really a naming of it. That is one, very true to being a Latino person in the world, because in our communities a lot, like we don't name things, it's always just go around it. 
And you know, what's bad for life is good for fiction. So even though that's terrible because we don't say things straight, like it's great for it's great for narrative. True, because true, there's true. a lot of subtext in it. And these women don't talk um straight to each other. There's a lot of indirectness. Uh, but the indirectness is also crafted with such like intention, you know? And so I love that. I love that there's like all those ways that language functions as like there's all this like how do I call it? Like, yeah, all the subtext that it's constantly kind of like looming over, but you don't really name it. And I just, you know, she's, she's 15. She can't be a lesbian. There's no, like, there's no way for her to be a lesbian. She's not going out with people. She doesn't have that as a reference point, but she right. feels this really huge desire. And also the fear of being able to name something is huge. Um, Especially around really, sex, right? Yeah, that is, is, is just, yeah, especially around sex is just really big. And I also like, I wanted to, I wanted it to be like slow because that feels to me like that's also how you discovered. And, you know, this is before there's social media. So there's no like Instagram and there's no, you know, there's no way of like seeing other gay people. And in my own life, I didn't see queer people at all until I was like way older. Um, even though I was already feeling queer desires, I had no idea about any any of this. And now, so, is that just ver- just very briefly? Is that because like queerness wasn't visible or totally not present? Right? Like, I think there's a lot of times when we look back at our childhoods and we're like, "Oh, there was like this." G-. I just had no idea how to mm-hmm. access it. Yeah, I mean, there was in my world when I was growing up the only way that people call on lesbian as a word was as a pregorative and pejorative term. And it was women who weren't being, it was like, you know, it was a joke. Like they're, they're ugly. They are not going to fuck. Like no man likes her. And so it was the worst thing that you could be, but there was no really even a conversation around desire. I grew up in such an extremely conservative family that I didn't even think that gayness was a possibility at all. It wasn't even like a thing. Uh, Bogota in general was having a very different, there's a lot of queerness in Colombia and it has been happening for a very long time. But in my world and how I was being raised, like it was just not even, there wasn't even a possibility. And difference was also put down. And so I feel that she, I think that what she senses more is that her own difference is just not really welcome. Any of it, you know, even if it's sexuality. So there's, there's a moment, for instance, where she has like drawn all these like stars on her hand and people look at her when she's wearing all black, people look at her. So she just like difference is already being policed. So her desire is just another layer of being different, you know, regardless of what it is. It's just difference is policed. Um, so I think it's getting more around how how difference is just very much seen as other and pushed and pushed apart um, more than specifically around sex. What's funny about that? I mean, funny is not the right term for this, but um, it, or a way in which that is even more heightened in this book is because the, that being the indirectness of language or not being able to really talk about something or put your finger on something is that you. You use both English and Spanish, as we as we mentioned before, and so you actually have access in this book to, and you take that access. You make you use you take it to your use it to your advantage for two different languages, right? That you have this this vastness of linguistic access to talk about something, and so it's even more 
mm, let's see, it's even more noticeable that, well, you still can't, right? That there's still some limits to what language can do, even when you have this wealth of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I feel like you're right. You really notice the silences in the book because it's also very loud. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah the voice is like super loud. She like she has an opinion about everything. She talks about everything. She uses both languages, and yet there's huge, huge silences around her naming what she really feels. Yeah, and so I think that there's there's a, a huge stark contrast with that because, yeah, there's no there's no language for it, but it's also no language and culturally it's just she can't even conceive about how to how to bring that up so there's all this there's all the silences around it yeah i was wondering when so you know when we immigrated i remember that there was you know probably a let's say a a time when suddenly i found that i was thinking in english which i had not done before and i and that was a real it was a, it was a revelation i think did you have a moment like that? Did you have a moment where you you felt that there was a blending of of these languages in your sort of inner experience and then the way in which you you write? Yeah, I can't remember a specific day. Like I rem- I don't rem- I don't think that I ever woke up and was like, "Oh my god." Um, <laughs> yeah. All of a sudden I'm dreaming in English. So I moved to San Francisco 11 years ago. And before that, I never had to use slang. So what that mm-hmm. means is that the the English that I spoke was like in my school and it was like proper English, but it wasn't like what I'm doing right now with you all, uh-huh. which is just talking and talking to people. I did not do that. I didn't have any friends that I spoke English to. We only spoke mm. Spanish in my house. So all my time in Miami was very different than when I moved to California. And then I went to Berkeley here and I start and I started to develop like my own sense of slang and uh, I started to develop like my own sense of language. So it was definitely while I was in California that a lot of the blending really took place. I had seen it already when I was living in Miami because I, the Cubans that very basically built Miami, they all speak in Spanglish. And so I was already around it. But I didn't feel that pressure of the English until I moved to California and I had to start uh, communicating with people on the daily in English. Mm-hmm. So that definitely shifted a lot of things for me. And now I think and dream and everything in both languages. Like it's completely mixed all the time. Okay, so to kind of wrap up, one thing that we didn't get to talk about is something that fascinates me and I'm sure all of your Instagram followers which is your kind of drag persona. So obviously this doesn't come up in the book, but I wanted to talk to you a little bit about how you think about, and we'll post a a photo to the show page, but how do you think about drag, both as like performance and transgression and also as just art? Yeah, I mean, I love drag, and it was actually the world of drag that also brought me a lot of the love for language that I have. Mm. Um, when I moved to San Francisco, I one of my best friend became this Mexican drag queen called Reina Estlan, and she introduced me to Esta Noche. She was performing there. Esta Noche Club. Oh, yes. Very, very, very famous club in San Francisco. Yeah. I mean, it was like this like dingy hole in the wall that was like, you know, it was like very like, 
like Latinos who spoke like Spanish only will go there. But it was open since the 70s. Yeah. And when I got here, I would go there and I would see the queens and they were incredible. They're just so funny. I think that I'm just really attracted to camp a lot. And okay. drag queens are very campy. And on top of that, they were, you know, there were queens that were born here. There were queens that had just arrived from Mexico. So they had to figure out a way of communicating with everybody in both languages. And they will like make stuff up. And so it was beautiful. It was a beautiful thing to watch. I laughed so much. And I was always like, oh, my God, the stuff that they come up with, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, because they would just like, they would just come up with anything. Who cares? It's a drag show. Like, it doesn't matter what the language sounds like. It just has right. to be comfy and fun and quick. So definitely that was a huge study on voice. And the self-expression. I, again, like I said, I grew up in a very, you know, conservative family, very, very Catholic, then very Christian. And I always had a yearning for self-expression. It was huge in me. And I always tried to dress differently. But it was when I got here and I saw the drag queens that I was like, oh, my God, this is incredible. And my friend then started to drag me up. What happens later is that I meet my my uh, queer mother, who's a trans woman from Cuba. Her name is Adela Vasquez, and she makes she's in the book in Cuentamelo, and she came here in the '80s, and she becomes my queer mom. And at the time, I don't have a relationship with my birth mother, mm-hmm. and so Adela really becomes my mom. And in her house, I also meet all this like older fags and queens, and the world of you know, it's both like the world of like transness and drag that comes, that like uh, explodes because she is from a very different generation of transness than it is now. Right. So that line is also way way more, way more fine than it is now. And drag has had a huge impact in who I am. Like it's huge. And it's for me, self-expression is a huge way of it's a way that I connect with the world is a way that I process the world. I think that our bodies were made to be imaginative and creative and that there's a huge pressure to be normal because you also get rewarded. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet the beauty and the the groundedness and the, I don't know, like I just feel so incredible every time I beat my face, every time I wear a lot of sparkles and the love that I have for that is just huge. And that definitely seeps into my writing. So, you know, when I have to sit down and put on a face and put on a look like that level of creativity also seeps into your writing all levels of creativity are gonna feed from each other and so i've been doing i started just dressing up in drag because i liked it and then i started doing storytelling in drag and for four years i was running radio productions and we would go on a tour called sister spit and for sister spit i did like every single night we had a show and i hosted it every single night in drag and then i perform in drag and this storytelling just comes to life very differently. So I learned, I borrowed from all these queens uh, that were lip singing. I borrowed their campiness and the love for the stage. And drag just gives you like a different humph to be able to be on stage. You know, I feel like such a bitch and I can take anything. And I love that. Um, and I do. And, you know, that's what I miss the stage so much is because the relationship with the audience is so it's so crucial. But what drag queens really know, what drag really tells you is about entertainment. And the reason also why I started dressing up now I'm remembering is because I was really bored with the way that readings were happening, literary readings, where <laughs> everybody would show up in like jeans and a T-shirt. And, you know, there was no 
thought put into the performance aspect of the reading. Yeah, the text could be really good, but remember you're still entertaining and you're still on a stage and this is your work. Like how are you presenting your own work? You spend so much time, you know, in a room writing this and it's so important. Like why do it so nonchalantly? And so I remember dressing up for my MFA classes because I was like, this is boring. So you all, I'm going to just dress up in drag and I will show up in full drag to like an MFA workshop. And the professor would be like, <laughs> okay, this is what we're doing today. But it was mostly because I didn't want to be bored because I felt that writing didn't have to be boring and didn't have to be plain. And like, why can we just like liven this thing up a little bit more? And also understanding for myself that many times when I'm up on that stage reading my work, I'm, I'm an entertainer. I'm yeah. an entertainer yeah. too. And so I've borrowed a lot from that. And now... I mean, before this whole thing went down, I was making a living basically going to universities and doing talks in drag because people really respond way better. Right, and, of course. Yeah, because you're, you're being entertaining and you're engaging. And like, you know, I, it, just, it has just provided me with a beautiful framework around my own work and around like existing and around the fact that like me dressing up in like a huge wig and big nails and big eyelashes doesn't take away from my my smarts you know and so I feel that the academia sometimes is very much full of grays and blacks and people dressing very bland um, especially women because your intellect is kind of like tied to how you look and what I like to do when I go to universities is like, I'm still a smart bitch. I'm just wearing like huge heels and big, you know, and like long nails now. Um, I love so that. <laughs> I, I love that. And the students really like that. And I love being able to bring that campiness and that, yeah, just like a different way of engaging to my own work. And so, yeah, it just has a huge impact. And I feel like I just really like, I love drag and I love, basically what I love is just, people being able to like express themselves however they want through clothing and through their bodies. Well, we are all for that. And we are going to end it there. Thank you so much, Juli, for joining us. We've been speaking with Juli Delcado Lopera, author most recently of Fiebre Tropical. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Erica Medaya. This has been really wonderful. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley.